So, Ben, what would you do with a billion dollars? Parking garages. Parking garages. <laughs> yeah. I've always said parking garages are a great investment just for cars. But when you add EV charging infrastructure and people commuting and leaving their cars there all day, you have a giant stationary battery in the middle of a city. That was an off-the-cuff question. You clearly came prepared. You've been thinking about this. I have. <laughs> Catherine, what about you? Uh, what would you do with a billion dollars? I would do whatever Jigger tells me to do. <laughs> Jigger, what would you do with a billion dollars? I don't know, but I guess we're going to find out in the next couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, we'll get to why I'm asking that question uh, a bit later in the show. But first of all, if I had a billion dollars, I might put some of that money into commercial solar. And if I was you know, investing seriously in commercial solar, I'd probably want some kind of insurance product. And I might turn to energetic insurance. Energetic insurance levels the solar playing field so project developers can have comfort and they can have something similar to a FICO score in residential solar that enables them to finance commercial solar projects and turn around portfolio refinancings faster. If you want to learn more and submit your projects today, go to energeticinsurance.com GTM. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power is a leading manufacturer of high-density, high-voltage energy storage solutions for utility, industrial, microgrids, and mission-critical markets. They are now taking orders for the Mark I system with market-leading energy density, and uh, deliveries will happen this spring. Find out more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E power.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. This week, lighting the unlit, the cutting-edge business of bringing power to the last billion people on Earth without it. We're going to follow the money, the markets, the business models, and ask whether distributed renewables are providing a real alternative to slow grid connections. We've had a lot of demand for this topic, so we're devoting the whole program to it. Uh, politics be damned. There's a lot going on in politics, but we are turning our attention to the rest of the world. And with us here, who you heard at the top of the show, is probably one of the best experts on this subject we could possibly have. It's Ben Atia. Ben has spent years immersed in the world of solar home systems and off-grid renewables in the Middle East and Africa. He leads emerging coverage of off-grid power markets for Wood McKenzie, and he's constantly publishing research and, and presenting on this topic. Ben, it's good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Stephen. And of course, I've got my regular co-hosts here, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine's there in Washington, D.C. She is the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine. Hi, it's Nehruk week, so I've been hanging with regulators all week. <laughs> Are you there right now? No, I'm not. This was the last morning, so I decided not to come. But yesterday, my DER coalition, the Advanced Energy Management Alliance, released this big paper on resilience from the customer's perspective, which is, uh, spoiler alert, it's not the same as utilities and ISOs. <laughs> <laughs> Jigger Shaw is in Bethesda, Maryland. You're in Bethesda, right? I am. Or are you out in out west? I am out west at Hampton Inn. <laughs> Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital, and he is also our regular co-host. How are we doing? I'm doing great. Well, uh, one reason you might be doing great is because your firm, Generate Capital, just closed a billion-dollar fund to support clean energy projects throughout North America. And uh, before we turn to Ben, I just want to talk briefly about that. I mean, this is a big deal. And I wonder uh, what this means for the kinds of projects that y'all are going to be supporting. 
Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I think the reason it's a big deal, in my opinion, is because we're allowed to invest in anything that fits a project finance model. Um, so we can, you know, fund green hydrogen. We could fund um, recycling plastic, right? We can really fund anything that has sort of the four corners, right? Technology that works, feedstock agreements, offtake agreements, and people who know how to operate it. And how long did this fund take to come together? Well, it's investment into the corporate. as uh, It's a nuance, but like, so we're not operating other people's money with a general partner, limited partner structure, but instead all these people are shareholders of Generate Capital. Um, but it took most of uh, 2019 to close it. Um, and so it was, uh, it was, it was an interesting experience though. Uh, you know, like just meeting all these, uh, wonderful folks and understanding what they, what they wanted. Yeah. So I've, uh, heard you from, you know, doing the podcast from the road a bunch this year, Jigger, and now we all know what you were doing. <laughs> yeah. Hustling. There was definitely a lot of, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, so, so what does this mean for scale, Jigger? Like, uh, you, you guys have pulled together funds worth maybe hundreds of millions of dollars, but now we're at the billion-dollar scale. What does this say about the state of investor interest in clean energy projects? And quite frankly, the wide array of projects you're supporting, not just traditional wind and solar and batteries. Well, I think it actually means that there's enough money to meet the policy ambitions of uh, the local politicians, right? There's There's forever been people who are interested in 45Q credits for carbon sequestration or people who are interested in fuel cells or anaerobic digesters or whatever orphan tax credits the federal government passes. But there hasn't really been a go-to financial partner who's in charge of actually working out exactly how those technologies scale. And now you've got one. So, Ben, uh, I'll let you talk to Jigger after the podcast about your carport idea. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) Okay, so let's go beyond the grid. There's a thesis that goes something like this. The old way of connecting people to the energy system, building out a centralized grid, is slow and ineffective. We've seen for decades that countries that rely primarily on building out this central grid have not reached the people who uh, don't have access to energy. And it's just not a good way to solve energy poverty. Now, We have much better, cheaper solar and LEDs and electronics and electric cooking now. And the question is, should we be focused primarily on getting people solar or mini grids and then building energy services from there? And there are a lot of people in this space who say, yes, that's where we should be putting most of our attention. And we've touched on that on this show. So I want to know, how is that thesis panning out? What business models are working and what is not working? On the good news side... Just a couple of years ago, the number of people without electricity fell below a billion for the first time. Um, and But that leaves more than 800 million people in the world with still no electricity. So how are we going to serve them? What's the best, fastest, and cheapest way to do that? And that's why Ben is here. Um, ben, let's, let's talk a big picture about the off-grid energy access space. What does this market look like right now? And where does the distributed renewable side fit in? Yeah. So I think if you just zoom out to a very high level, uh, we talk a lot in the advanced economies of the world about electrifying everything and about the growth of renewables. And I think if we sort of look at those lessons in context, what they what they really suggest is that 
we are decarbonizing in a grid that already exists. So new renewable capacity is substitutionary rather than additive. Um, the grid is already connected customers and the utility business model between uh, you know, an incumbent utility and an end user is evolving at the grid edge. We talk about that all the time. Uh, and I think what's happening in emerging economies is that uh, we never quite got to sort of that baseline, that proper utility 1.0. So the evolution from utility 1.0 to 2.0 isn't really happening. Um, in fact, most of those utilities are are failing at doing the, the utility 1.0 part well. Um, so in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, we see that uh, most of that disruption um, has left those utilities pretty poorly positioned to electrify everything, not just and customers, but also electric heat and transport and other industry, they're actually often the most cited obstacle to gr the growth and maturity of the electricity sector, not to mention failing to meet their universal mandates as natural monopolies to begin with. Uh, actually, a couple of years ago, there was a World Bank study that showed that there are only two utilities in sub-Saharan Africa that don't lose money for every kilowatt hour they sell. They call it a quasi-fiscal deficit. And the average utility in sub-Saharan Africa loses 12 cents a kilowatt hour. That loses 12 cents a kilowatt hour. So it's very difficult for them to serve their customers well. Um, their distribution loss rates are, can range up to 40%. Uh, so while their sort of source-to-sink model of utility 1.0 um, is, is failing, uh, the utility 2.0 bi-directional relationship between a utility and a customer can't happen. Um, and that's where we're starting to see a lot of private investment step in because there is a better alternative. And that's, that's where the distributed renewables um, have really started to see growth. Jigger, how bad is that problem that Ben just identified and what kind of opening does that provide? Well, I, the reason it's so bad is I think that it, it causes paralysis, right? And so I think you've started to get this just stark realization from the government as well as from funders that if a town is, you know, 10 kilometers away from the grid and, you know, and for some 25 kilometers away from the grid, they're just never going to get served. Like it's just the chaos from the utility side and their persistent money-losing enterprise means that they're just never going to get there, right? And I, I would say that we lost 10 years because of this fight where people were like, well, but why would I go with a mini grid or a solar home system when my, my utility is promising me that they're going to connect to me within a few years? And I think people have now fully realized that they're just never going to connect it because their, their host utility loses 12 cents a kilowatt hour. So, Ben, when we think about how to service those customers better, how to create a bi-directional system, get them electricity faster and do it a lot cleaner. What kind of technologies are we talking about right now? Like when, when you're talking about this space, what are you identifying as the technology solutions? Yeah, so it's a bit of a murky space to define, um, but I think it'd probably be helpful for us to focus our conversation just on off-grid residential electricity access, so for household applications. Uh, of course, there are other sorts of off-grid technologies for larger you know, commercial and industrial customers, and um, they need access to electricity as well. Um, but I think for the purpose of this conversation, the technologies that are serving, uh, you know, off-grid households uh, take two main forms. One is solar home systems, which are essentially residential off-grid solar, typically with storage and typically pretty small scale, um, and also typically using what we call a pay-as-you-go business model, uh, which is sort of like a rent-to-own or a prepaid mobile phone 
um, type approach where you put down a down payment and then pay for electricity as it's used, typically over a, a cell connection. Uh, and then there's also a larger scale, which is a, what we would call a mini grid, which is essentially a microgrid, um, but but disconnected from the grid uh, and typically would serve a larger set of customers, including typically an anchor customer, you know, a, a cell a mobile phone tower or, uh, you know, a larger commercial off taker just to anchor the, the demand. And so how big is the market for those technologies? So, I mean, again, it, there's a couple of different ways to think about this. One would be look at the addressable market. There's about 840 million people around the world that don't have access to electricity at all. And if you expand that number to include the people that don't have access to reliable electricity, that's about $2 billion or more. So if you have a, a, a utility grid connection that's expensive and unreliable, do you really have access to electricity? Uh, that's a tough question. Uh, but then on the other end of that spectrum, if you have a solar home system that offers you a few watts of power a day, is that access to electricity. Um, and there's a lot of debate in that space around what constitutes access to energy. Um, but if you look at the addressable market, of course, it's quite large. And if we look at the growth of electricity demand that's expected in emerging markets uh, compared to what's expected in advanced economies where we see uh, stagnating electricity demand, you know, electricity is a low margin business to begin with, especially when it's regulated, especially when you have low cost renewables entering the grid. Um, so there's about 15% growth in electricity demand expected by 2040. Uh, but whereas in emerging economies, that number is 90%. Um, so if you can think about the, the simple denominator of that math, uh, the, the market potential is simply enormous. So there's something that you touched on there, and that is like, what does energy access mean? And how far can these technologies go in getting people uh, scaling their lifestyles, so to speak, or, or uh, scaling energy to meet uh, more energy-intensive lifestyles. And that is a really interesting debate to be had. So I want to table that for a second. Uh, Catherine, let's bring you in on this. You've been talking to a bunch of folks as you've been thinking through this subject. What are you hearing about the state of play for energy access right now when it comes to renewables? Yeah, so I reached out to Richenda Van Leeuwen. Um, she and I worked at Good Energies together, and she's now the managing director of the Rocky Mountain Institute Energy Access Program. She's been in the space forever, her entire career. And she said, look, we have to step back and take a look at how everybody is going to meet uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goal Number 7, SDG 7, which is ensuring access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. How do we do that in a way that meets everyone's needs. So, you know, we were trying to differentiate between are there countries that want to increase industrialization? They require very different energy solutions than those who want solar lanterns, who just need the lantern piece, to others who want refrigeration and, and cheap cooking and other types of appliances. So how do we look at this from a from a planning standpoint, where do we need to cite resources? What are the best resources to cite? Um, and then what can you afford? Like, what what is it that can really serve people in an affordable way? And there's a lot of work going on on, you know, maybe you can't afford an induction stove, but maybe something like an Instapot would, would work for cooking and be a cheaper alternative. There are all these um, efforts to try to make appliances cheap, cheaper and much more efficient. Um, the UK has a big program on this called LEA, the Low Energy Inclusive Appliances Program, that is developing with UK aid a bunch of different types of appliances that would work to try to fit the needs of the population um, that is underserved and that has been vastly underinvested in while doing this affordably. I think just if I can jump in on two points there, um, the first one is 
thinking about affordability. Uh, and if you look at the solar home system market and the actual cost per kilowatt hour that those systems can offer, it's quite expensive. I mean, it's ludicrously expensive compared to what we pay. And it's it's similar in the mini grid space. Um, but I think it's important to look at the value proposition uh, against the alternative, right? So the alternative of having no access to electricity is, you know, collecting and cooking biomass, collecting and burning biomass for cooking fuel, um, or having to, you know, go into town to charge your phone or whatever it might be. Um, so the the cost there is still offering a very compelling value proposition. So there are some stats that have been floated around like $37 billion um, is an estimated annual spend by low income customers on basic energy needs globally every year. Um, and the estimated total capital outlay in order to electrify uh, the remaining population from 2018 to 2030 was $624 billion uh, to reach universal energy access. So thinking about the the high cost, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, the, the unit economics are quite... Uh, difficult when compared to, you know, what we're paying for uh, electricity uh, in, in advanced economies. But I think it's really important to look at that value proposition at the margin um, and understand that that's where the real value is offered. And then the second point I'd like to make is just that um, I think Catherine made a really good point there. There, People don't have direct demand for electricity. Um, you, you know, you're not getting demand for kilowatt hours in and of itself people are demanding what electricity powers, right? So when it comes to ultra-efficient appliances or um, other types of services that are powered by electricity, whether they're simple or complicated, um, the ultimate demand is, okay, I don't need kilowatt hours. I need the things that kilowatt hours power. Um, and that's where there's a really, really interesting uh, discussion around the future of the utility business model, where it might mean that uh, providing access to electricity in many of these contexts using the technology that we have now actually means you become a customer-centric service provider, not just an electricity supply company. Yeah, and some of these technologies that are being deployed are really interesting. Like um, I talked to Alison Archambault, who's been, who has Spark Meter, and her smart meters are being used by grid operators in 24 countries already. So part of this is just getting information. So as you say, Ben, we can get services that are needed to all those communities. Part of the challenge here is that a lot of folks actually still only believe the first half of what you said, right? They just believe that these solutions are too expensive to deploy, and they'd rather pe keep people in the dark than actually help them at all with high prices, right? And that's the fight, I'd say, that we've been having for years. And, you know, when you read the new Rockefeller Foundation report uh, with MIT, you see glimmers of that right, where Ernie Moniz is like, well, we still prefer the grid. It was the big fight we had when we established the SDG 7. I mean, I remember being there and saying, like, the word modern is a double-edged sword, right? Though The folks who were pushing for grid expansion put the word modern in there because they're trying really hard to say you can't provide modern electricity with solar lanterns or solar home systems or microgrids or minigrids. And I think that today, you know, we've shown that we actually can and the technology is ready to go. You see a lot of folks from Energicity, you know, our good friend, Nicole Pointexter, who runs that and others who um, have proven, and to your point, Ben, like they have even vertically integrated at times to own sort of ice production and selling ice as opposed to selling um, 
just the electricity. So I think that you have great solutions on the ground, but I think the fight around the $600 billion is actually between people who just don't believe that the solutions that we represent can provide modern energy. Right. And and I, I would say, too, that there is a bit of a... Um, an unfair comparison, maybe, right? I mean, if we talk about electricity demand use uh, or electricity demand in, uh, you know, if I look at my utility bill and my monthly consumption of kilowatt hours compared to, uh, you know, somebody in in a place, a low energy access country in in sub-Saharan Africa or in Southeast Asia, uh, of course, there's a massive dichotomy. um, And there's a a massive inequity there as well. Um, But part of it comes from well, if I offer similar services with higher efficiency appliances um, and higher efficiency uh, sort of end use consumption, um, does that narrow that gap a little bit? Yes. Does it close that gap? No, of course not. Um, there's a stat uh, that talks about how an average Ethiopian uh, uses less electricity per year than a highly efficient American refrigerator. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a there's a massive inequality, um, but I think we have to talk, make sure that we're comparing apples to apples when it comes to um, looking at what a modern energy need is. Um, and I also think that that doesn't mean that we're saying that uh, you know somebody in, in a low energy access context is should be sort of satisfied with consuming far less electricity than than we do in the West. Um, but what I do think it means is that. Uh, we have to understand what the technology can and cannot offer. Um, so I think that solar home systems and mini grids um, offer basic energy services. They don't offer uh, electricity uh, electricity capacity for a high energy economy, which is what is necessary. So I'd wholesale reject that, though. I mean, that's that's completely ridiculous. Like when you look at Nigeria today, they've spent a hundred billion dollars on a grid that nobody uses. For $100 billion, I could have given everyone in rural Nigeria modern energy using microgrids and minigrids that allow them industrialization. I just think that the the frame is just completely wrong. Like nobody in Nigeria wants to build an aluminum manufacturing facility. That's not what we're talking about here. And when you think about like what people are actually doing to like grow chickens and having grow lights and figuring out how to do all of that... The solutions that we provide are more than adequate and, in fact, far superior than the grid extensions. And the reason I get so worked up about this is because we actually have all the money in the world to solve this. We could do it in three years. It's, like, not a problem. The problem is that the World Bank and many other institutions won't give money for this purpose in the billions of dollars. They continue to give it in, like, $10 million increments because they think exactly what you said, Ben, which is that that we're not providing these people modern energy. So the investment is also really lumpy. So, you know, there's some donors are focused on East Africa, you know, Nairobi, where Mombasa is a really good port coming in from China, Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda, but West Africa doesn't get nearly as much funding. Um, India is getting some funding. Bangladesh has some, uh, you know, microfinance models that have been around forever. But it's not just that we're not putting money in the right way. We're also not necessarily putting it into every place that needs it. If you're trying to raise money for a commercial solar portfolio, you got to have insurance. And Energetic Insurance has a new insurance product that will make your portfolio even more valuable. It uh, transfers credit risk to a highly rated insurer. 
and it gives developers and investors the confidence and certainty of cash flows required to unlock capital for their investments. The Enterrate credit cover is very easy to understand, and it is now award-winning. If you want a fast and easy way to provide a credit backstop to your portfolio of commercial solar projects, go to energeticinsurance.com GTM. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power serves the growing demand for industrial energy storage solutions. It's now taking orders for 6 gigawatt hours of capacity, which will be available in 2020. Core Power is planning to build a new battery manufacturing plant right here in the U.S. And uh, once operational, it could be about a million square feet and have 10 gigawatt hours of scalable capacity. The renewable energy industry needs a new battery manufacturing partner to build tomorrow's grid. That partner is Core Power. You can learn more at korepowercorepower.com. I, I think maybe just to... to provide some clarity to the conversation. I think there is sort of an all of the above here. Um, and I don't want to paint a broad brush over the topic. In fact, what I'd like to do is the opposite. Um, I think there's a real value and this we can get to the Rockefeller MIT report in a minute here. But, um, you know, the, the report does an excellent job talking about integrated distribution planning, which I think is one of the really, really, really important pieces of this puzzle. So there is, if, if an entire country was electrified using solar home systems and mini grids, it would be very difficult for that country to industrialize. Um, if an entire country that doesn't have access to electricity today or has very low rates of access to electricity today uh, was electrified using only grid solutions, especially when the utility is in really bad fiscal shape, um, like in Nigeria, then uh, we would also run into a lot of problems and we would see that sort of decade loss that you were talking about earlier, Jigger. But I think, I think we have to understand that there isn't a, a uniform answer here. Um, there are some people in small, in, you know, in with lower energy needs in rural areas where the best solution is a solar home system or a mini grid. Um, there are people in urban areas that have have a grid connection, but it's unreliable or very costly. And there's also a market there uh, for solar home systems and mini grids. There are people who live in urban areas that are that live directly under grid infrastructure. An estimated 110 million people in sub-Saharan Africa live within one kilometer, a stone's throw from grid infrastructure and don't have a grid connection. Um, but they live in an urban setting. You have a good arm, Ben. <laughs> but that's the most wild piece to me about this. And I think why the argument for off-grid solutions resonates with people or beyond the grid solutions resonates because you have so many people who are so close to the grid who have not been serviced and they've been close to the grid for a long time. And, uh, you know, that's part of why this narrative has shifted because there are so many people who in theory should have access to a centralized system that don't. Right. And there's, there's even on that investment piece, right? There is lumpy investment, quote unquote, in the sense that, um, the in investment has flowed disproportionately between on-grid solutions and off-grid solutions, um, and that there is a bit of a push-pull in the investment community, both from the sort of DFIs and the international donor community, as well as private investment um, in directly into companies deploying these solutions. Uh, that that sort of there is a bit of a push-pull there on. Um, you know, what sort of the best solution is. But what I think is important to recognize here is that there is an urgent need for a high energy economy in these countries. Um, but when we're talking about residential energy access, uh, the value proposition for off-grid technologies is highly compelling. Um, in most cases, it's also a starting point. So when we go back to that conversation about the utility business model, uh, what we're seeing is that 
company private companies are realizing that these customers have a high demand for electricity, a high willingness to pay. They're they're spending $37 billion a year on poor, inefficient solutions for their energy needs, their basic energy needs. Um, they have a high willingness to pay. Uh, and there's a compelling value proposition and that over time their demand for electricity and the services that electricity powers is going to grow rapidly along with the rest of the country. Uh, and then when it comes to industrial demand and industrial electricity, um, there's a lot of reform that needs to happen at the distribution level of the grid. Um, and that goes back to you know a country like Nigeria. There's 12 gigawatts in Nigeria of installed capacity for a country of almost 200 million people, but only 25% or less of that 12 gigawatts of power actually reaches end customers and even less of it is actually billed properly. So there's less than four gigawatts of grid connected demand in Nigeria for a country of 200 million, Africa's largest economy. But there's an estimated 40 to 60 gigawatts of diesel generation that's distributed and off grid powering the entire country. The entire country's economy essentially runs on diesel because the distribution companies are bankrupt. Well, and this is where, and, and this is why I think I just, I just fundamentally disagree with the the sort of the rubric, right? Because when you think about where these guys are now, a lot of them are actually at price points that exceed 20 cents a kilowatt hour. And when you look at where renewable energy microgrids uh, can go, even at multi hundred megawatt scale, you're really talking about um, price points that are far lower than that, right, already. And one of the challenges I find with the framework and the all-the-above strategy is it that the, na- the, the local governments naturally prefer coal and natural gas. And the reason they naturally prefer it is that's where sort of, you know, bribes and other things can actually be easily paid out of. And so, like, part of this is we just all have to be clear-eyed about the hidden messages in some of these reports. When you say all the above, you're kind of saying fossil fuels. And I think it's just crystal clear that we're not there anymore, that we're moving past that. And the technologies that we represent um, can actually provide full industrialization at pretty low cost. And so I don't, I just don't subscribe to it at all. And I think it's important for those of us who are like fighting in this area to recognize the battle lines because it is the it is the part that um, is holding up hundreds of billions of dollars of World Bank money. Um, they either want to like destroy ecosystems to build out, you know, pretty invasive large hydro, or they want to build coal and natural gas infrastructure. The amount of support we're getting for microgrids um, or central generation in the solar and wind space into these central grids is pretty shockingly low. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that point, Jigger. I, I do think that the um, that investment bottleneck is certainly present. I think maybe, maybe a good direction to take the conversation is to think about what it looks like to take a, a country like, again, Nigeria, where the entire economy is run on expensive and uh, price risky diesel, uh, and to take that situation and think about the different scenarios, right? There's a full grid scenario, there's a full off-grid scenario, and there's a something in between. Um, maybe maybe what I would call an all-of-the-above approach. Uh, and I think what we're seeing a lot of in the energy access market, uh, there's a $350 million World Bank program called the National Electrification Program that's been launched in Nigeria, um, which which sort of takes this approach. $350 million is not enough, but it's, it's going to go a long way. Um, and it's still... It still has a long way to be... It's almost nothing. 
It's literally it's literally less money than the state of California provided for frontline communities for the power safety shutoff reliability program. Yeah, it's a different context. Um, but I think I think it's it's certainly not nearly enough, but it is a start. Um, and that program's success is still yet to be seen. It's still in its early days. Um, but I think what, what we're seeing in the sort of off-grid or energy access community is that there is an approach to, under, to sort of recognize that we need institutional help at the generation, the grid scale generation level, the grid scale transmission level, the grid scale distribution level, the mini grid level, and the solar home system level. Um, and that by doing that, we can start to understand how can we electrify, meet different levels of need, whether it's basic household use or large industrial applications, um, ac- diversely across the country at lowest cost. And there's a lot of really, really interesting software and GIS mapping and um, AI stuff that's going on to have a uh, to get a better understanding um, of how we can really do that in the most efficient, most capital efficient way possible. So there does seem to be a shift here. And although the money is still relatively small, it can have a big impact in these emerging markets. And if I think back to going to energy access events in like 2012, um, like at the Rio Plus 20 event or in, in the subsequent years when the the UN was coming out with its updated energy access programs, there was a lot of talk about natural gas. It was, they were starting to talk about phasing out coal, but it was like a serious focus on natural gas. And now there's a more diversified approach. Now they're definitely talking about more distributed renewables. Um, and I feel like maybe it hasn't played out in terms of a massive swing in investments, but I am definitely seeing a material shift in the way that folks with money are talking about and approaching this space. Catherine, did you get that sense? Yeah, I think one of the things that's happening is a little bit of settling on some of these PAYGO investments like Mobisol. And I think we should probably talk about that a little bit because there needs to be a little bit of understanding from financial organizations and funders as to what they're going to get from their investment and not be underwhelmed with the results of that uh, from a return. And so I think that there has been a little bit better understanding, uh, but I'd love to hear you all's perspective on this, on what investors going to actually get? What can they expect from investing in some of these solutions and technologies? Yeah. So I guess that brings us to who is investing. There are a lot of big oil and gas companies and multinational utilities that are getting in this space. So when we look at the broader investment landscape, what interesting is happening and uh, what kind of investments are we seeing? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, it's a pretty pretty diverse uh, class of investors that have moved into this market. Um, it, It ranges pretty broadly from DFIs, infra debt, there's some specialty debt providers. SunFunder is a really great example. Um, there's a lot of private equity, some family offices, uh, a lot of strategic investors, which is something that we at Wood McKenzie have been working on quite closely. What's a strategic investor exactly when, in this context? So we would define a strategic investor as a, a top-down energy player that doesn't operate purely in this market that has made equity investments uh, into companies operating in this space. So the good, great examples of that would be Shell and Total, um, EDF and NG. Uh, we've seen a lot of investment and activity from Schneider Electric, uh, ABB, 
the, the list goes on and on. Um, but we've actually published a, a really interesting report on this last year that I'd encourage you all to take a look at. But what we did is we, we took a look at the total investment landscape for corporate level investments. So we're not looking at World Bank programs lending to governments, but who is investing in the companies that are deploying these types of solutions. Uh, and what we found is that 2018 was the highest year for investment yet. Uh, we'd seen growth every year, and there was over $500 million invested in companies directly uh, in 2018. Uh, in 2019, uh, that number was $463 million, which is about 10% less than 2018. Um, but that pushes the total disclosed investment at the end of 2019 to over $2.1 billion um, from 2010, invested in companies deploying solar home systems, mini grids, um, and enabling technologies that support them. And what we what we did is we said, okay, well, we've, we've taken a look at the entire investment landscape. Uh, we've understood where this money is coming from and where it's going to. And then we use that to contextualize, okay, how much of that money is coming from strategic investors? Again, Shell, Total, EDF, NG, Schneider, et cetera. Um, and, and what are they doing there? And we, we talked to all of them. Um, and the results were pretty interesting. So we found that over 75% of their investments were directly commercial. Um, so we're not, ex you know, there's a, might be a perception that much of what they're doing is screenwashing or CSR, um, and that's fundamentally not true um, for at least three quarters of what they're deploying. Um, and what we found is that there are a couple of different sort of sets of strategies that some of these companies are taking. Um, but just to highlight two of them, if we maybe just look at some of the oil and gas majors as in one category, and then we maybe look at some of those European utilities in another category, uh, those European utilities have been facing... Uh, you know, low margin business in um, Europe, uh, it, you know, facing a lot of incumbents, a lot of ultra low cost renewables, uh, high energy efficiency, stagnating electricity demand growth. So they've looked to globalize their business outside of their home markets. They, they've been doing that already. Um, and what they started to realize is that uh, what it means to fundamentally be a utility um, is going to start to shift. Um, and that means that acquiring new customers and offering new services um, is something that they need to start doing. Um, and the easiest and cheapest way to start learning about that is to do it in places where there is no utility to compete with at all. Um, so that means places where there are off-grid customers, an incumbent state utility that has um, not met its universal access mandate, and people, again, with that high, high demand for electricity. And what these companies have explicitly said is, you know, we'd like to offer them a lot more than electricity. So electricity is a starting point, um, and we can go far beyond that to be able to offer internet and water services as other sort of incumbent utility businesses, as well as retail goods and financial services using this pay-as-you-go business model, all sorts of other things that they can, what I've called, stack value on top of that basic electricity connection. Um, and it's pretty fascinating to start to see the way that they've piloted some of those things. It's a little bit hard to tell exactly how deep into uh, you know, the customer's wallet they'll be able to go and providing them um, all sorts of other valuable services. Um, that's a little bit still to be seen, but there's a lot of really interesting potential from a utility going from a source to sink uh, provider of kilowatt hours to a customer centric service provider of, of many other services. And then even when you look at the oil and gas utility, uh, oil and gas majors, Shell and Total are great examples. Uh, many of them have invested in this market because they need to fundamentally transform their business from being an oil and gas major to being an electricity major. So Shell has taken two approaches to that. One is to buy first utility for around 200 million US dollars in the UK. And that's one way to have electricity uh, customers. And even there, they're already starting to pilot offering 
um, internet services and discounts on petrol at filling stations and things like that. Um, and then in sub-Saharan Africa and in India and in Southeast Asia, they've made quite a few investments in solar home system companies and mini grid companies and smart metering companies um, because they've started to realize if we're going to acquire customers, we can we can buy out a utility in the UK or we can, again, go to a place where we don't have to compete for them um, and start to test what it looks like to um, transform that utility business model. Um, Total is the largest distributor of solar home systems in the world. Um, because they use their existing network of their distribution network of uh, filling stations in West Africa and they sell solar lanterns. So, I mean, there's a lot of really, really interesting long-term strategy going into a lot of that investment. Um, and I think that's something that I expect to continue in the future. Yeah, I think that the um, the investment by the oil majors and the utilities are pretty important, frankly. Like, I think it's, I think, this is the sort of, you know, organic growth story around providing people with cheaper power than the $5 a kilowatt hour that they're paying for charging a cell phone when they pay five cents to charge their cell phone. So I totally get um, the market. I just, I would just reiterate that these companies are the same ones who have a huge amount of influence over their home governments, right? Total in France and you know, shown the Netherlands, et cetera. And when you think about $30 billion that's been invested in the African electricity sector in the last few years, like it just feels to me like these are the same companies that could ramp up the lobbying support necessary to shift a lot of that money away from, you know, the LNG uh, terminals and, uh, you know, and other things. Also, it's fossil fuel subsidies, right? I mean, many of these countries are also you know, taking precious dollars they don't have and providing a dollar a gallon in subsidies for gasoline and diesel, um, which would be far better spent on some of the other solutions that we're talking about. So if we look at Project Drawdown and the list of decarbonization solutions that they've uh, put together, giving women access to the energy system, giving them access to education and family planning are all really important components of um, lowering greenhouse gas emissions. And they're some of the most cost-effective solutions that we have, too, beyond sort of the technological solutions. So I think we can't have this conversation without thinking about the role of women in energy access. Catherine, I know you're working with a lot of women who are specifically addressing this space. How are they faring? Yeah, so I thought it was just women in this space. Uh, and then it turns out, no, that's just because I go to women's conferences and those are the women I meet. <laughs> so so as it turns out, there is not parity yet. Um, and studies show that closing the gender labor gap could add $28 trillion to the annual global GDP by 2025. So it, it, there's a huge opportunity there. There is a project called the 2X Challenge Financing for Women, and it's headed by the G7 Development Finance Institutions, the DFIs. And what they've said is, all right, we're going to put, we're going to go for $3 billion committed. And right now they already have $2.47 billion committed. And that's from development institutions, but also a big chunk from private sector capital and other capital like governments and foundations. And what they say is, look, here's what we need to do. You have to meet one of these criteria. Entrepreneurship, so either your founder or your directly owned majority women. Your leadership is majority women, so boards, C-suite, management. Your employment is women, either women in the workforce or and or programs and policies that 
help employees like women. And then the final category is consumption. So is this beneficial to women? Are women your customers? So those are four categories. It's not just about does it serve women, but is it led by women? And the first investment to qualify was PEG Africa, which is great because it was West Africa. And they met three of those criteria for, um, you know, entrepreneurship, leadership, employment consumption. So um, it's it's a really good intentional effort. And it does have to be intentional because there is not at the moment diversity. And yet there is so much opportunity for wealth creation. Yeah, Catherine, you're, you're absolutely right. So gender plays a huge role in the energy access puzzle. Women often are the ones who are making financial decisions for these families in, in most of these cultural contexts. Uh, women and girls often receive outsized benefits from what access to electricity offers, um, you know, ability to go to school instead of um, you know, helping things around the house that electricity can provide for, um, increased safety, et cetera. Um, and also in a lot of uh, really new business models, there's thinking about community managed systems, which is something that I've been um, working on for quite a while um, in a way to reduce operations and maintenance costs in remote areas. Um, and those types of systems are also disproportionately managed and succeed it uh, disproportionately managed by women and succeed disproportionately more when women are involved on those boards. So what does all this amount to? I remember back in 2014 when we were getting this podcast off the ground, we brought Justin Gway, who was then at the Sierra Club, to talk about um, this space. And we, and in many respects, we were having a similar conversation, but so much new has happened. I think, you know, international, the international investment picture has shifted. You do have these more strategic investors. Uh, the costs are obviously much cheaper and you have a range of new businesses operating. So there's a lot different here. But of course, the enormity of the problem makes it so that like we've still just barely scratched the surface of, of what distributed and off-grid renewables can do to serve the energy impoverished. So I guess that the big question I have is, what's the most significant change and have we made a dent? Um, ben, I'll start with you. I mean, if we think over the last five or six years, what do you see as the biggest shift and how meaningful is it? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that the space has reached uh, a bit of a tipping point um, part of that comes from the investment picture changing. I think the strategic investment landscape is going to have a massive impact in the long term. Uh, but I think what has also changed is just a recognition of, again, this, you know, I, I don't want to maybe harp on it too much, but this all of the above or this integrated framework for understanding access to energy and full electrification. So I, I do think that uh, I actually do remember that episode with Justin from from a long time ago. And if I recall, uh, there was a lot of discussion around, you know, how we started this conversation around, is it all grid? Is it all off grid? And is it, you know, what's what's energy access? And I think the realization has shifted to, you know, we can do this, we can meet all of those needs, whether they're high energy or low energy uh, at a more cost efficient uh, or with more cost efficiency, with more capital efficiency. Uh, by being a little bit smarter about it. And that means smarter subsidies for programs or for technologies and market segments that require it. Um, that means thinking about the sort of unsexy piece of reforming distribution utilities, which is what the Rockefeller and MIT report and that new um, global council are going to be really focused on. Uh, and thinking about um, how do we think 
or how do we uh, co-locate some of those markets in ways that um, avoid the problem that Jigger brought up at the beginning, which is you know the stranded asset risk of building mini grids in remote areas. If we don't have clarity or transparency on what the future grid extension plans are going to look like, so if we are facing a risk of building a mini grid because we don't know if the grid is going to be extended there, and the the rules would require us to turn over all of our customers or to turn over our distribution infrastructure to the national utility because we're operating within their service territory. Um, it's very hard to get a, an investor to be on board to build a mini grid. But I think if we can, um, if you, you started to see some countries, Togo in West Africa is a really great example of a country that has married public support and private support um, and off-grid and on-grid to really, really start to close that gap. Um, there's public support from the World Bank and the IFC with the scaling solar program coming to Togo, um, looking to build utility-scale renewables with storage on the grid. Um, they've got some assistance coming to um, improve their electricity distribution network. Um, and then they've also offered some concessions to some leading off-grid companies to build solar home systems and mini-grids in targeted areas where they know that the grid is not going to be extended for quite a while. Um, and it's a tiny country, but it's a really, really fascinating microcosm of how we can do sort of an all-of-the-above approach at the least cost to meet all of those electricity needs. And that's the main sort of shift in the conversation over the last five to six years, because we started with this sort of fully either or, and now we've really started to realize, hey, there are ways we can be smarter about this and be more capital efficient. I think it's great. I also think that there are places like Sierra Leone where um, they've also done this uh, with... Um, UNOPS and funded by DFID, where they've deployed 54 microgrids with private operators that operates under a 20-year license. My point is really just that when you think about how the feed-in tariff market in Germany and the 10,000 roofs program in Japan started off the boom that we now uh, realize with the solar movement, I just think that there needs to be a level of effort that's at that level. And when you look at the fact that there are, you know, probably eight billion dollars a year of subsidies provided by these African nations for fossil fuel consumption every year, that there actually is no shortage of money, right? Where there is is a shortage of will. And now that we've actually proven that all these technologies work and we have all these tools and we have big data approaches and other things, I just think that we shouldn't let people off the hook by giving them awards for doing small things. I think we're at a point now where we need to do big things and people have to recognize that like it's time to step up and roll these things out like Sierra Leone is doing, like Togo is doing and others because the technology is ready. It's actually a political will problem. Completely agree. Okay, let's turn to free electrons now. Catherine, over to you. What uh, interesting are you following or what's happening in your, your work life? Yeah, so what's interesting is last week I was trying to think of a free electron and there was the House Science Committee. So the Science Committee is the authorizing committee for Department of Energy research programs like ARPA-E and other programs that kind of sets like what are the guidelines for those programs? What do we hope to get out of them? And then the appropriators decide how much money they get. But the authorizers ca called in... Uh, Dan Simmons, who's the Assistant Secretary of Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency Programs, along with NRDC, who has been putting out these programs saying, like, we're, they're not actually spending the money they've been told to spend by Congress. So they had a hearing last week where DOE was really taken to the woodshed on this. And it's pretty interesting because DOE has been getting more funding for these programs, certainly by far than what they're requesting. So in the 2020 budget, they got $2.8 billion. 
And the Trump administration just this year came out with their budget recommendations, which was $720 million for the program. So a big difference between $720 million and almost $3 billion. And in fact, they recommended to zero out ARPA-E, which has been doing amazing things, including this new program scale up and a lot of other things. The, the new budget from the Trump administration just shows how much they don't support these programs. And so in my mind, there's, there's not a surprise that when NRDC goes to look at, all right, all the money that's been given to them, are they spending it? And no, they're not spending it. So it's really tough because there are all these companies that I work with that are hoping for all these interesting grant programs to be issued by DOE, and they're not able to get them out the door. Um, there's a reason for that. I think it means that from the top, they don't support them. So let's keep our eyes open and the pressure on. Well, we all know that these budget requests are purely political posturing and members of Congress are certainly not going to adhere to them. Even Republican members, they support DOE and the, the even the DOE's renewables mission. But uh, certainly the way that the Department of Energy is run is a problem for companies in this space, regardless of the budget. Yeah. And these, pro the, as you say, these programs are really popular across the aisle. So the president's budget would not be what Congress would enact from appropriations, but it still leads to how these programs are implemented uh, when they when the money hits the agency. Jigger, what's your free electron? Aside from figuring out how to spend a billion dollars, what else are you thinking about? <laughs> so in January, uh, the popular energy uh, podcast that I listened to, Columbia Energy Exchange, uh, hosted by Jason Bordoff um, at Columbia University, uh, hosted Bob Dudley, who, you know, according to Twitter, had just uh, a, a doozy of a podcast where um, he basically claimed that clean energy was not profitable enough for them to invest more into and that um, that you know, that they were just woe is me, only like 8% of total oil production globally for all the publicly traded companies, and they were getting picked on unfairly. Um, and, you know, and luckily, you know, it was his like swan song podcast, because the new boss that came in, Bernard Looney, who just uh, became CEO uh, a few weeks ago, has just announced that that BP is going to be at zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And he's going to do all of the things and increase their stock price substantially that Bob Dudley said wasn't possible in January. So well, Jason kudos. needs to have him on now. Yeah. Kudos to BP for, you know, out with the old and with the new. We were just talking about this, Ben, before we hit the record button. We so. were, yeah. I have a pretty similar free electron, which was maybe a little bit more broad, thinking about the leadership changes that have been recently announced at a number of these energy majors, who also happen to mostly be sort of strategic investors in the off-grid space. Um, but... And NG CEO um, Isabel Coker was sacked um, with a bit of uh, uncertainty around exactly why. Longtime BEP CEO Bob Dudley was retiring and replaced by Bernard Looney, um, who clearly seems to be pretty future minded, speaks a little bit more openly about climate change, has just this morning announced this net zero by 2050 uh, target and some reorganization in the company. Uh, maybe a little bit of uncertainty around this ex target that says, quote, increase the proportion of non-oil and gas investment over time. It's a little broad, but I'm excited to see where that heads. The former EVP of Shell New Energies, Mark Gainsborough, announced he's leaving later this year, be replaced 
by is Elizabeth Brinton, um, and then also the coordinator of the U.S. government program Power Africa, Andy Herskowitz. Great guy, did a lot of really, really important work over the last seven or eight years, um, has just left to become the CDO of the newly created U.S. Development Finance Corporation. Um, so there's a lot of shifts in leadership um, in the world that I operate in. Um, so my free electron is to just keep a close eye on exactly how these things change and, and what the sort of direction of some of these very large companies um, or organizations are that, that will have an impact on uh, the world that I spend all my time looking at. Well, guys, I, I'm going to end in a pretty scary place. Let's talk about the coronavirus. So there's been a lot of reporting on the economic shutdown in China, and this has start, started to impact every piece of the energy sector. We've seen <laughs> oil and gas prices drop because of demand in China dropping as their economy slows down. Uh, Green Tech Media has actually done some pretty good reporting on the wind supply chain in China and how it will impact big companies like Vestas. Ben's team, the Wood McKenzie folks, have been tracking a bunch of solar manufacturing plants in China that have shut down, probably won't open up for months to come. Um, so this is definitely impacting every part of the traditional energy and the renewable energy space. And it's an indication of just how important China is in all of this. Uh, all roads lead to China when it comes to the supply chain for conventional energy and renewable energy. And the coronavirus is proving that. Yeah, pretty scary stuff, I have to say. I mean, there's a uh... There's that cruise ship that couldn't find a place to port. I think they finally ported it in Cambodia. What would you do if you were stuck on that cruise ship for that long, Jigger? I would party. Don't go on any cruises. <laughs> That's just a bad idea. Oh, come on. I love cruises. <laughs> just make sure you wash your hands. <laughs> Benatia of Wood Mackenzie. Thanks a lot. This was fun. Yeah, this was. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Jigger, always enjoyable. Don't go on any cruises, please. <laughs> I think I'll stay on dry land. <laughs> Catherine, have a good week and weekend. Good to chat. Thanks, you too. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my co-hosts. And this podcast is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. You can find us all on social media. We're all there on Twitter. And if you want to hit us up and tag us and react to the points that we made on the show, you can find us there. We'll, we'll link to our different Twitter bios in the show notes. Uh, we'll have some link to some of Ben's work as well that you can peruse and if you have other ideas for the show hit us up at postscriptaudio at gmail.com ingrid lobet is our senior editor i am the executive producer and uh thanks to all of you for being here we appreciate it <laughs>